Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by my colleague and dear friend, Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, San Francisco, I hear, is still there. How's it going? San Francisco is there and last time I checked, I have a pulse. So I'm alive. Oh my gosh. San Francisco lives, contrary to all the rumors. Listen, everyone, we have a special show for you today. We are going to kind of blaze a new trail. And instead of doing our usual deep dive into like fintech in the UK or whatever, we are going to have another journalist on, namely Elliot Brown, the author of a recent kick-ass book called The Cult of We, digging into the broad arc of the WeWork story. Elliot, you're a reporter of the journal. You're here with us. How are you? Excited to be here. As a data point for everyone, I blasted through this book over the weekend. Super digestible. The easiest analogy, I think, is that if you read the Theranos book, uh, I think it's called Bad Blood, it has a similar fun flow to it. So like, unlike most business books, you don't want to die while you're reading it, which is a great place to start. But Natasha, we have a zillion questions, but we want to start out a little bit with some reporting questions, I think. So why don't you take the lead? Yeah. So Elliot, I started reporting on tech around two years ago, which is when the WeWork story started to really loudly manifest. For people who are kind of catching up or want to reminisce, take us back to like the early years of reporting on it. And my, my first question specifically, what did access look like for you when you were first talking to WeWork? How accessible were they? I first came upon them in 2013 uh, when I was a, a wee real estate reporter at the Wall Street Journal and was intrigued by this kind of fast growing new trend of co-working that was WeWork and others. And so I met Adam Newman, the CEO, at his office in lower Manhattan, and he was super gracious and, and friendly and had me in and he's like bouncing off the walls for this 40 minute conversation. Then he like walks outside and tells the whole staff like, hey, everyone. This is a friend. It's Elliot. Give him whatever he wants. At, at, at first, it was extremely gracious, though they did not like that they were being that a real estate reporter had shown up. They, they made very clear that they were not a real estate company and they were confused what I was as to why I, as a real estate reporter, would be interested in writing about them. And, and there lies kind of the, the key issue that they have throughout their entire life, which is, OK, you're not a real estate company. Then what are you? And that seemed to be a question, according to the book, really up until when they were writing their S1 filing, trying to figure out how the hell to describe themselves. So uh, for folks who only pay tangential kind of like focus on this, why did WeWork really want to be slathered with the technology label uh, and avoid the real estate moniker? That one's pretty easy. It's just about money. You know, the more that you are a real estate company, the less you're worth compared to software companies, because if you build software... Every time you add a new user, you just send them the files across the tubes or whatever, and you get all profit. But every time you add a new user for a real estate business, you need to add a new desk, a new office space, and that costs money. And so there's kind of a, it's, it's not nearly as attractive a business if you grow it big. So if you make it seem like you're a tech company and then traditional tech investors, if they don't think too hard about it, will be like, wow, that's going to be a super valuable business one day. So going back to the 2013 issue, initially hugs, high fives and tequila shots is the mood. And then uh, things change. Obviously, your relationship didn't end the way it started. When did things become a little bit more, may I say, antagonistic between you and the company? It evolved over time. I didn't write anything until 2014 when they were a $5 billion company. I was just baffled by this because I still hadn't really grasped what was going on in Silicon Valley. And I was just like, I know what a building's worth. I know what a $5 billion you know, portfolio of buildings looks like. And 
those people have a lot more buildings and they actually own them. Whereas WeWork is just leasing these. So it made nowhere close to sense. And so that as I like gradually understood more about how they were branding themselves, uh, I started writing more about that. And I think they kept trying to sort of convince me and, and bring me in and think I'd see the light. But I kept writing about them sort of as a real estate company and with the skepticism to valuation led to increasingly tense calls with the PR operation. Adams stopped talking to me basically in, in 2016 or 17. Interesting. Access is something I'm thinking about all the time. I think what a lot of PR thinks a big part of its job is and its power is, which is like giving reporters access to powerful people who can afford to have PR. And I guess I'm curious how you viewed getting around access. You know, it'd be frustrating to see when other reporters would get access with Adam and you'd get like a two hour tour and have all these funny anecdotes that read really well in a story. And it's like, well, we don't get that. But, you know, one of the nice things about Adam Newman and WeWork was they just left a trail of anecdotes that were not that hard to find. Um, sort of, <laughs> like I say, like a, a, an elephant through the jungle. It, it was not that hard to find journalistic gold. From a purely tactical perspective, and this can be like my last just nerdy journalism question, how do you stop yourself from covering each anecdote as a standalone story or kind of gathering string and knowing when to like hit publish? Because I think that's something that people get wrong all the time and it ends up being distracting. I think you did such a great job executing it. I get that wrong a lot myself. With WeWork, it was about patience. And my editor, I'd come over to him with anecdotes every few days. At some point, he's like, just collect all of these. And so I realized at some point I should do a big profile. Started collecting them and going down a list. And then I sort of realized, it's like, well, when you get like 20 of these together, it's a lot more powerful than if you do 20 little stories. Let's get into like the S1 moment because, Alex, I don't know if you know this, Elliot was on vacation when the S1 filed, and I thought you could empathize with that since you are our trusty S1 reporter. Yeah, this is one of the worst parts of any financial reporter's job is uh, when stuff drops when you're trying to have dinner. Um, <laughs> but Elliot, let's talk, let's talk about the money. Tasha's a good point. So going back in time to the $5 billion 2014 valuation, was that the T. Rowe Price deal? Yes, correct. End of 2014. Yeah. And then 2015, Fidelity Money shows up, $10 billion valuation. And Adam Newman gets out there and says, oh, you know, we weren't even pitching people. You know, we were just people just coming to us, which was a blatant lie. And then Fidelity gets pissed off. And that to me is such an illustrative moment in the story because it just goes to show how shameless Adam Newman was with the truth, you might say, and also how quickly he would burn people once they had provided benefit to him. And then it seems that those stories just kind of echoed and magnified. But can you tell us a little bit about your impressions about how he managed to convince so many people that a low margin, high burn real estate company was actually going to be tech style profitable in time? That era when he was raising from the mutual funds was really when light bulbs started to go off like something's crazy here because it went from being a $1.5 billion company to a $10 billion company in like 13 months and very little change about the business. It also went from being a physical social network, which is the original way they sort of branded themselves, to being part of the sharing economy, just like Airbnb and Uber. That is kind of the way that Adam was able to raise money from these like actually quite sophisticated investors. Just with a je ne sais pas of like being in a room with somebody and just being really excitable and not boring in the way that I would be with somebody in a room. But, you know, he just has this energy and gets people to see something that really isn't there. It's very magician like. Throughout the story, though, there are some naysayers. Like, for example, I think there were folks at Fidelity who were running the math and had looked at the company before and were like, this doesn't add up. 
And then even inside of SoftBank, you know, Masa wanted to write this four or $4.4 billion check, whatever it was, but people even in there were like, uh, dude, what's going on? And so how did that? That's when you know, when SoftBank is pausing. <laughs> well, I trust the nerds, right? I mean, dear God. But there was a disconnect between the analysts and the principals at these investing firms. And it seems that Adam was essentially able to, uh, man polite language to gently hoodwink yes <laughs> yes that's a good these term principal players uh, at the at the at the expense of their hard analyst work i'm just blown away that it happened again and again and again so uh one person who worked at WeWork was like one thing i never got was all these firms when they'd come in and invested in us they'd never ask us about our last projections to see if we'd hit them and if they'd done that then they'd see we'd never hit these things when we started off on the book one thing we really wanted to answer was like okay all these fundraising things where he just like would come in and Fidelity would raise at twice the valuation of T-Roth five months later, there must be a, a, a story there beyond the obvious, which just seems that like Fidelity was mad that T-Roth was in and, you know, just double the valuation. Then the more you learn, you're like, oh no, that's what happened. <laughs> and so at the mutual fund stage from the WeWork side, it appeared that at the Chinese private equity investor stage, which was their series F, and then at the SoftBank stage, all three of those, you had analysts being like, well, this is an overvalued real estate company. But the principals who were in the room with Adam were at all stages convinced within minutes to invest in this thing. And then that's what drove the decision. Then the due diligence followed. In the Fidelity story, for example, in the book, in like 15 minutes later, the guy's bringing in other people from the Fidelity office to meet Adam and ends up with kind of a full conference room. One, I have met people that charismatic. They are not very common. And just to be clear, I'm not one of them. Same. <laughs> That's why we're all here. If you add the three of us together, we're like 2% <laughs> of the necessary charisma. But they are a fundamentally different substance. And it seems that there wasn't a safeguard in the investing world to prevent someone with that level of charisma and just straight straight shamelessness. Chutzpah. Chutzpah. That's even better. Uh, with the upstream chutzpah to come in there and claim 40%, you know, EBITDA margins on buildings that when the math came out later were actually 10%. Ah, just, just your book made me want to shout a lot. I wrote lol in the margins like every other page. <laughs> to, to me, the crazy part about this book that, that you and Maureen wrote is that it's not really a history book. It feels like it's a book about right now. Feels like WeWork could be replaced with a lot of names. There's this idea that I keep thinking about, which is like kind of gaslighting founders and them being like, well, it's so hot. We should be able to raise so easily and we, we deserve all these things. And just kind of helping them understand the disconnect, understand what went wrong in the past. And I feel like it could be required reading for them because they might be like, well, shouldn't we just get a soft bank check and shouldn't this be done within five minutes? Founders shouldn't want that either. Totally. I, I think this is, I mean, the reason we were so interested in WeWork is just not because it was only like this crazy thing fueled by tequila and, and surf pools, but it was this parable for the entire Silicon Valley startup ecosystem. And that's like why I came out to Silicon Valley to start writing. And I tried to stop doing real estate because I would just like see all these ads on the subway in New York for these products where it's like, they're saying that's a great product with a lot of confidence, but I can sit here and tell you that they're losing like $40 every time I pay them $5. Like what, what on earth is going like in the water out there that there's smart people that think this is a good idea? Yeah. One thing the book does well is chart different levels of enthusiasm throughout the economy. As you guys discussed, you know, the big bike sharing companies in China kind of fell apart. The scooter companies in America fell apart. The Uber for X boom collapsed. And it seems like everyone instantly forgot about all those bets that failed. And then as money kind of moved back towards software in the startup world has not only recovered entirely, it has reached all time new highs. And if you just remember the, the wreckage of confidence in tech land, 
after the WeWork S1 landed with a splat. It's amazing to me that that wasn't that long ago. It wasn't even two full years ago, I don't think, back to 2019. It, no, I, so like we when we started the book, there was yeah, people forget that after we worked S1 and disaster, there was this huge chill and suddenly like Silicon Valley late stage iced over and everyone started to be like, man, you really what we've learned is you need a path to profitability. And it's like path to profitability. Isn't that what a business is? Like, how, how did you not have a path to profit? <laughs> like, but but so people were saying that and like, well, I guess that's healthy that they're now saying this. But then the pandemic happened and then everything sort of sped up again. Now it seems that it, like it was this small blip. So, yeah, I, I don't know that really anything's changed at all. <laughs> one, one rabbit hole I found myself thinking about, I'm curious both of your thoughts on this, which is what if we work tried to go public during the pandemic, the pandemic hit and it, it's S1 never saw the light of day. Like what would have happened next? Because I think we saw so many companies kind of be like, the pandemic's happened. That's all the flaws of our entire business are explained by the pandemic when that wasn't true. What do you guys think? Well, <laughs> they didn't have enough money, Elliot, right? They would have run out of cash by the time the pandemic <laughs> hit, right? Um, yeah, I mean, had they not done an S1, like it turned out that they, they didn't have enough money even around the time of the intended IPO to lay off their staff. They were very low on money. Um, but, you know, let, let's say they had, they magically had another $2 billion dollars they had this fascinating way of just burning more and more money with like every passing day. And it was always like, no, 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 we're, we're, we're going to do great. Now it's going to turn to profit. But then it's like you look up and like every year it doubles. And one thing we've all learned about recently is exponential growth and losses with exponential growth are a very bad combo. And so they were getting on the path. To it's it's a very bad thing. So this brings us to what I was most excited to talk about, because I'm, I'm just legitimately furious with, with how I feel after this book, because, you know, greed is fine. I'm not going to go all the way to greed is good. I'm not going to start quoting movies. <laughs> it's like a college essay. But like, you know, in, in a capitalist system, having some focus on making money is perfectly reasonable. You need it as kind of an engine behind the companies that are building things. People don't get out of bed otherwise. Fine. But in the story of WeWork, there's two stories of hubris and two stories of greed. On one hand, it's the company raising money and doing things with it that were relatively silly and spending too much, burning too much, et cetera. And then there's the CEO. Then there's Adam. And it seems that at every possible juncture, he was content to rip money out of the business for himself, either through official channels, through secondary sales of stock and so forth, or through just boondoggles for his family. Like the whole we grow thing, which made me want to scream when I was reading the anecdotes about the elevator and how his wife got so mad at all the teachers for this so, like, you know, how do you feel at this stage about Adam and his focus on self-enrichment while bullshitting the world that he cared about other people? Yeah, I think the level of irony is just beyond rich that he literally called the company we. He would frequently tell staff, you need to put we over me. And then he ends up being like the most selfish person I've ever covered, most greedy person I've ever covered. And then would at multiple junctures hurt, like threatened to really hurt the company because he was negotiating packages for himself. There's a, a lot of people in WeWork that think that WeWork would have had this really happy ending where SoftBank was going to buy them out at the end of 2018. And largely he delayed that transaction by about a month because he was pushing for more compensation for himself and a better deal for himself in one where he could only get kicked out if he committed a violent felony as CEO. A normal felony would not push him out. But had he not spent those weeks negotiating, there's a lot of people that think the deal would have happened. It wouldn't have fallen apart. Instead, uh, it fell apart. And then WeWork fell apart. Uh, but this comes up again and again and again. The big SoftBank deal falls apart. SoftBank puts a little bit more money into the company. 
then they realize they have to go public. There's no other place in the world to get the kind of capital they need to keep growing. And then the directors had to build into his contract, essentially, sweeteners to get Adam to take the company public to save the company, to try, sorry, to save the company. I mean, imagine like me demanding you pay me to have me not shoot myself in the foot. Like it's, and this dynamic happened again later on when he was getting kicked out for failing. Can I I make it slightly more ironic? So one of the things the directors gave him was, I mean, just huge amounts of stock options essentially to grow the company's valuation above 50 billion. Recently, he renegotiated those so he would get them anyway, now that the company's valuation is $8 billion. So he took the company's value down by $40 billion, and he still got the incentive. This is what I mean when I say the bug movie want to scream occasionally. Like, <laughs> great read, but ah! We should have done video. It's just all of us being like, holy crap. Elliot, you brought this up earlier. It feels like nothing's changed in a way, the current fundraising and valuation, especially world of startups. So maybe the last section, we can talk a little bit about like how you feel in this current moment and kind of the role of the tech press. WeWork for me was seeing that story unfold was right when I was starting reporting on tech, like I said. And so to me, I started with like this very clear, like don't not ask hard questions. And I still have a lot of room to grow, but I think it changed the standard of tech reporting in a lot of ways. Where do you feel like we are right now in terms of the tech press being too cynical or not enough? Um, I I mean, with the disclaimer that I'm a cynic, I I think the tech press has gotten so much better. Being angry about the state of the tech press is what, again, like motivated me to come out is like, why is Fast Company calling Casper one of the most innovative companies on the planet? It just contracts with somebody else to make mattresses. Yeah, I, I think that cynicism out here, it's a sort of much bigger discussion, but is is appropriate. It's the most powerful sector in the economy right now. And our jobs to sort of like ask questions and not just buy the line of venture capitalists that this thing is disrupting a a sector just because we're subsidizing it for every product that they sell. So it's our, our job to sort of live in the now, not in the future. This brings me to something that I've been thinking about since I read it, because you take a couple of reasonable pot shots at TC in the book, and I, I'm not even really bothered by them. I've gone back and watched some of those interviews, and I'm like, eh, all right, fair enough. <laughs> uh, but one, but one issue that we have with companies like Casper is just it's very hard to get facts out of them a lot of the time. Like when Casper's S1 dropped, it was clear as a bright sunny day in California that it was a dog shit company. But up until that point very little had come out. And so if you, if, if something happens and you're covering Casper, you don't have a lot of grist. An example of this in the WeWork context was when Adam Newman sat on stage at a TC event in 2017, I think, and said that it was going to hover around profitability in a year in which it lost $190 million. Yeah. Now, they're losing like hundred percent of revenue. And he's like, yeah, we're around right, profitable. Which means spending $2 for every dollar of revenue they bring in, which by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't do accounting, that's bad. And so <laughs> Like, I'm glad we're all being more cynical and putting more feet to the fire, but I'm just just so bored with how little companies share while they're private. And uh, this is why I think TC has been advocating for more companies sharing more because we don't want to get fucked again like this. It was so frustrating to look back at the, the wreckage of the situation. Totally. And, and this is true for investors, too, right? Like, this is why this, this chunk of the economy is so prone to bubbles is it's all about hype and you don't see much fact. On the other hand, at least to me, and I took one econ class and I took some math in, in middle school or something um, like <laughs> it, 
you know, a lot of this stuff is pretty obvious. It's like, well, they say they're a tech company, but it does look like a real estate company. So, you know, you you don't have to think that hard (laughs) for some. (laughs) I mean, I think one of the biggest tensions between tech and media to get into that, it's, it's kind of like people assume a lot of tech journalism should just look like access journalism. Why are you doing more than covering the funding round. And I feel like Mm -hmm. it's a lot of education on journalist ends and just ignoring that. But I don't even know if there's a question baked into this. I just think that that's something that continues to haunt me about tech journalism is like being like, this is this, our job is not just to report what you tell us. Totally. And and yeah, like, I think it's it's something the industry is learning in a way that bigger industries learned a long time ago mm-hmm. and that, you know, the politics and government has learned since the beginning of time. But um, it's sort of a, a new feeling for, for yeah. the optimists out in Silicon Valley. The, the WeWork story also, though, to me, is a great example of the current economic world that we live in because of low interest rates, because of ample cash, because of everyone hunting for yield, because of people needing to put cash to work. There was just so much money lying around for this company to raise. And there was enough capital chasing good deals that, you know, relatively smart people were willing to fire billions of dollars into a company with gross margins. They made it look like a kind of good grocery store. Like it's amazing how they managed to get it so fantastically wrong. Uh, And this is why I ask startups about their gross margins. And this is why whenever I do, I get very poor looks from the PR person on the Zoom call because no one wants to talk about it. But I care about this stuff because I don't want this to happen again. It's it's infuriating to me. Um, Last couple of things. One, did you laugh your ass off when you wrote the Elon Musk anecdote when Adam tried to convince <laughs> Elon that getting to Mars was easy, but building community on Mars was going to be hard? Um, OK, the, my favorite thing about that anecdote is not even how Adam is like sort of despondent uh, that, that his hero just cast him aside so quickly, but that so Adam made everyone wait forever. He'd like make, be hours late to meetings and just have them sit outside his office. And Elon did the same thing to Adam. <laughs> beauty. That is beauty and grace. <laughs> Turnabout is fair play. Um, how is uh, the book comes out this week? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, J- July 20th. It's out. How does it feel to be to be done? What's next? It, it, I, I hope the world enjoys it. I am very happy to be done writing about WeWork because I've been doing it for, for six years <laughs> um, or so. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm super excited for it to be out there. I, I think there's like a ton of important lessons for Silicon Valley for like founder control, uh, which is this sort of meme that that people talk about, like everything needs to be like Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos. And it's like, actually, neither of those guys have founder control. You know, I think that's one of the sort of undercurrents for VC out here. And I don't know, I, I hope people read it, or at least I hope they, they skim it and uh, tell people they read it, which is really all I'm looking for. And I guess to close, like, how do you people how do you hope people feel after they read it? Like this is, is not a normal thing that that should happen in the world. Like it'd be nice if, if uh, you know, there were things that changed about the world so we don't have these things. I, my my um, long running campaign, I guess, in journalism and business journalism is to keep reality four of mind and, and to make sure laws of gravity ap- apply. And um, I think Silicon Valley often lacks that. It lacks critical thinking and it doesn't I'm, I'm not that smart. It doesn't take that much like you can do it. Just ask some harder questions. Like, just don't buy the line, you know, just think for a second. That's what I hope people do. And uh, I just, this is not, not a joke. I literally just got a text message from Amazon saying that my copy of The Cult of We has shipped. Thank you for sending us a pre-release copy to dig through. Uh, it was a real fun. Uh, the Cult of We is out. Fine bookstores, Elliot Brown and Maureen Farrell. Uh, Elliot, thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll talk to you when the next big company explodes and you write that book. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you.